Hello and welcome to episode 378 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Ben Olson, co-founder of LSAT Demon and the LSAT Demon Daily Podcast. Nathan is out today because he dropped his computer. I think he's actually at the Apple store right now. So I wish him luck. Maybe he'll join us. But benefit here, we have Angela Vorpal. Actually, wait, I didn't even ask you how you pronounce your last name. Did I say that right? You got it really, really, really close. Oh, well, you're so nice. You're so nice. Yeah, okay. <laughs> to so the point I mean, of, yeah. You were going to let Repeating it go. Repeating is okay. not necessary. Yeah, I was. Okay. I was totally going to let it go. Yeah, okay. How do you say it? Might as well. Vor- Let's get- Vorpal, like the guy's name. Vorpal. Vorpal. Oh, geez. Oh, yeah, I'm really even bad easier. At yeah, okay. Vorpal. <laughs> cool. Okay. Um, I don't even know where I came. I, okay, but that's great. Thank you, Angela, for being here. Angela is a law school strategy coach. You help 1Ls build a rock. This is your words rock solid grades, <laughs> a rock solid grades strategy so they can position themselves for their first choice job out of law school. Yeah, that's yeah. In a nutshell. So basically, when uh, people come into the coaching program, they're usually looking for I was going to say one of two things, but it's really just one thing. (laughs) The idea is, how do I get the best grades I can in law school? But of course, the extrapolation of that is so that I can get the job that I want. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, so much of what we do is help people get the best possible LSAT score they can get. And I think (laughs) as they realize how important that is, they realize that law school is such a numbers game, but it doesn't end right with admissions. It just picks up with your 1L year. Yeah. And that's what I always say, too, is that it's like the end is not the grades, right? The grades are a means to an end. And so it's a tool along the way, for sure. Absolutely. That makes sense. Well, definitely want to dive into what you have to share. I think you're going to focus on final exams, right? And how to do good on those. This show will air on Monday, November 28th, 2022. If you want to get on an upcoming episode, email help at thinkinglset.com. The next LSAT that's coming around the corner is uh, December 1st. Oh, wait, actually, no, that's the registration for the January LSAT, which um, I don't even know when that is, but I can click on our link here. Uh, You can get these dates at lsat.link forward slash dates, the January test. Oh, that's January 13 to 14. But in any case, you don't really have to worry about signing up for that until December 1st. On that same day, actually, Nathan is doing a free class that's Thursday, December 1st at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. It's how do I know when I'm ready to take the test? If you have not come to one of Nathan's free classes, I would strongly encourage you to do so. That's lsat.link forward slash Nathan. Angela, since you are here, have you ever come to any of our free classes? I can't imagine that you have. You're just I have not. To I took, us. I know I took the LSAT ages ago. And at the time I barely knew about LSAT prep. So I literally took the course that was across the street from the university I went to, which wound up being a great course, but that was the only one I knew about. Yeah. Well, good. Um, but you, you coach people now who know about us and that's how you found out about us. I guess. Yeah. My students love you guys. Yes. They're wow. big fans. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's always nice to hear. Um, I'm going to be doing a free class on Monday, December 5th. It's a circle slash boot camp. That's basically how to do one way of approaching some logic games. Uh, you can sign up for that at lsat.link forward slash Ben. Uh, well, let's go ahead and jump in. I did drop my computer. The screen is totally broken. 
the computer is with Apple. They're going to have it back to me in a week and I'm going to be slightly poorer, but that's okay. I have a backup laptop, so I... <laughs> Yeah. It's nice to see you, Ben. Thanks for yeah, uh, doing the interview with Angela Vorpal. I hope that that went well. It did. Yeah. Excellent. We'll get to that probably later in the show uh, because we are going to lead with some discussion of this new news. You want to summarize the, the news that has come in? Absolutely. So there's really been two things that are happening. The first thing is that the ABA voted to remove the requirement uh, for law schools to have an LSAT or really a test in their admissions process. That's not really new news. They've been talking about that for a long time. They finally took an anticipated step in that direction. It's not like a final done deal yet. What's the other news? The other news is that some schools, including Stanford, Yale, uh, Harvard, Berkeley have said, hey, we are not going to participate in the U.S. News and World Report ranking system. Yeah. And the headlines and the talk out there is like, OK, so what do we do now that the LSAT's gone and uh, U.S. News is now gone? And so what do we now? What, now what do we do? And uh, it's not quite going to go down that way. Um. Just because the schools we and we should say we already talked about this a lot on our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. So there's a long video and we're not going to rehash all of it um, on this podcast. But essentially, it's kind of no news, really. U.S. News will continue to rank law schools. U.S. News is not going anywhere no, the U.S. News organization said, hey, look, we're still going to rank these schools. And in fact, they have to if they want to maintain any sort of credibility. You can't have a list of the top law schools in the nation and not include Harvard, Berkeley, Yale, whatnot. So they are going to continue to rank them. And a lot of the information that they use to rank these schools is publicly available already. It's part of the 509 ABA disclosure stuff. So this information is there. They're going to rank them. It might have zero effect other than it's going to make U.S. news job a little bit harder when it, you know, fabricates its rankings every year. And I do think that fabricates is a pretty good verb uh, there, being as it indicates that the shit is kind of made up. It is an indication of something, right? They are looking at objectively uh, identifiable numbers. And to the extent that you value those numbers, is the extent to which you can value their ranking system. But that said, 40% of the ranking system depends on peer review. So how much other people value these schools, which is a little uh, silly in some ways, but in other ways, I guess it's not, right? You are also just buying reputation when you buy a school and that reputation is based on what other people think, even if it's even if they're wrong. Oh, yeah. And the rankings, even if the rankings are just a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? U.S. News yep. is so big now that people think that schools are prestigious just because U.S. News says they're prestigious. Well, now, OK, so if U.S. News says you're number one, then a lot of people believe you're number one, which now maybe that means you're actually number one. Yeah, because better students go there and they have better <laughs> yeah. outcomes. And this this system right. has developed and now it's become entrenched a little bit on some level. So it's hard to see what schools can do by just saying, hey, we're not going to participate. Yeah, it is possible that this will make it really, really hard. I 
guess for us news to create their rankings although no because they can they can use metrics that they gather from other sources i i don't know it makes their life a little bit harder but as far as whether it diminishes the influence of these rankings on real applicants decisions i don't really see any reason why it has to do that yeah well you know we'll we'll wait and see we'll see what happens but our guess, at least my guess, is that nothing is going to really happen. And these schools are just going to use this as an argument to say, hey, don't worry about the rankings, but people still will. As far as the LSAT, you know, the ABA removing its requirement that law schools use an admissions test, um, just because they're not required to use it doesn't mean they're not going to use it. And in fact, it has been the number one metric for many schools and it has never been required that it is leaned on so heavily right the aba said well you have to have an admissions test as some part of your admissions process the schools are like yeah well we consider it number one and in many cases you know three times as much as number two which is undergraduate gpa yep other schools weight those two things fairly evenly but every school has LSAT up there as number one or number two most important metric. And nobody has ever forced them to do that. They're required no. to have a test. They're not required to lean on that test as like their best indicator of whether you're going to be successful in their school or not. Well, let's be clear here. So there are two things going on, right? The ABA is removing this requirement, which, by the way, won't happen until 2025, the fall of 2025. So this requirement is still in place for a good three years, right? Uh, so <laughs> nothing's happening soon in that regard. But even when it does happen, and the reason we're talking about these two stories at the same time is that I think the real reason that law schools give so much weight to the LSAT is the ranking system and their desire to find applicants who are likely to perform well in law school, which the LSAT has demonstrated its ability to predict. So those two things, because they probably aren't changing, even though the ABA rule is changing, it's unlikely to have much of an impact. Yeah. Law schools want to know whether you can cut it at their school. I mean, they want you to be successful. They want you to get, which by the way, being successful in law school for many students, um, in fact, for most of the students who are going to go make a lot of money after law school, uh, the big law lawyers amongst you, success in law school means success in your 1L year. You need to get really good grades so that you can get a great first summer yeah. so that you can get on the path to a big law job and you should have it locked up halfway through law school, right? I mean, there's many two L's that know where they're going to work after they graduate. Yep. And if not, then three L's for sure. Because the LSAT does such a good job of predicting one L grades, not a perfect job. It does a good job of predicting one L grades. It does an even better job of predicting one L grades when they use the LSAT with undergraduate GPA. Yep. But LSAT does a better job of predicting your law school grades than undergraduate GPA does the combination yeah. of LSAT and undergraduate degree uh, undergraduate GPA does a great job of predicting your one L grades. And I, it was, um, I think it was Dean Z right from Michigan. She said that it was, she thought she could predict like half of your grades. Yeah. 
based on LSAT and GPA. And they, they want you to succeed. They, they want to know that they're admitting somebody who's going to be successful in their school. And so they use LSAT a lot for that. Now, it might be the case that they're not really using LSAT itself because of the rankings, but they still will be using LSAT as a proxy for other stuff that is going to help them go up in the rankings, which I think you've already said. Yeah. So long and short, not much, if anything, is changing. So <laughs> yeah. stay focused on getting the best possible undergraduate grades you can get. That's goal number one. Goal number two is to get the highest possible LSAT score you can get. And goal number three is to apply as broadly as possible. That's the best way to yeah. go to the best school for free. And that's yeah. still totally possible. And nothing's changed there. No, nothing's yet. changed. And as far as, yeah, I mean, it's funny because it's sort of like I'm a, uh, I'm a defense attorney here on the, um, you know, whether these, the U.S. news and ABA LSAT news are going to do anything. It's like. Well, it's not really going to do anything. And even if it is going to do something, it's not going to do much. And even if it does do a lot, it's not going to happen until 2025. <laughs> so <laughs> sit back, relax and stay on course. <laughs> yeah. And uh, don't panic. Law schools are still going to be really interested in high LSAT students. They're still going to be out there chasing those students with scholarship dollars the system is still broken. Don't worry. You can still take advantage <laughs> of this broken system by uh, improving a lot on the LSAT and getting yourself the best scholarship you can. All right. Um, I guess we should just get back into the regular uh, programming. Let's do it. Uh, well, let's go ahead and jump in. So you reached out to us and specifically you're Great email, by the way. It was titled The Top Five Mistakes 1Ls Make on Final Exams and What to Do Instead. Uh, definitely want to get into those mistakes. But before we do, I guess I'm curious, how did you end up where you are today? And what do you do most of the time? And then let's let's dive into these tips. Okay, nice. Yeah. So I've been a full-time law school strategy coach for three years now. Okay. And I did not, it's, that's not actually a thing. I don't think that's a real title that exists anywhere, but it's like the closest thing that I found to call myself for what I do. You and made it a title. That's I made enough, it a title. Right? Yeah. I mean. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so yeah, so I basically help people coming into their 1L year of law school. So the before, the during, and the after of that first semester and okay. we focus on grade strategies and job strategies. And specifically for that first semester, because your number one focus is grades, that's primarily what we do. And the way that I sort of stumbled across like the coaching world was actually through YouTube. So about five years ago, I started my YouTube channel and it was basically just sort of an outlet for me to make videos on things about the legal industry I was really frustrated with. And just like I had all these chips on my shoulder from being like a young associate and specifically starting out as a new lawyer and all the things they don't tell you and how there's this expectation of perfection, but they don't actually give you any training or support or, or resources or, or anything. And so I started making videos about things that you need to know when you're starting your first legal job and when you're working at a law firm for the first time and how to be a good associate and all these different things. And what I found was that I started getting a lot of engagement on videos that were much more basic than that. So it was more like 
what is a lawyer and what do lawyers do and how much money do lawyers make and what, what does the day-to-day -day look like and that kind of a thing. You were saying that you were doing these YouTube videos really for associates, right? And Yeah. And yeah. what you found is that the engagement was coming from people who haven't even, or I guess are in law school? Well, so that was the sort of question because I would basically start getting these questions of sort of more basic of like, I'm interested in law school or I'm heading into law school or what to expect from law school and that kind of thing. And what I realized was that I was loving answering these questions. I would write like two, three paragraphs on comments on a YouTube video of just like, here's everything you need to know. And here's all the stuff I didn't know and the mistakes people make. And and so as I was kind of, yeah, going down this rabbit hole, I, I also started to take online courses. And the first one I ever took was how to make YouTube videos. And so it was like how to write your scripts and how to find tags and what to title your videos and all these things. And when I was in that course, the, um, the coach in that course said, oh yeah, so you know, you'll use these YouTube videos and then you'll help people find your coaching business. And I just started thinking, oh, do you need a business in order to make YouTube videos? So that was like the first thing that I'd ever heard about coaching. And so it just, I, it was like in one ear and out the other. And I just really kind of ignored it. And then I started following people on Instagram and LinkedIn and sort of all these other platforms. And by the end of, I think it was like December, 2019, I was just so excited about this idea of coaching. And I was like, okay, great. Coaching sounds awesome. I love giving advice what am I going to coach around? And so in January of 2020, I was like, well, I could coach anywhere from people who think they might be interested in law school to people heading yeah. into law school to people currently in law school or to people who are just brand new lawyers, right? And, and are yeah. looking for some help yeah. with that. And so I did basically just an all hands on deck. Anyone who wants coaching can come and get it. And I coached people through this six-week program and about 97% of the people who were looking for help were people heading into law school. And I was like, all right, well, yeah, at least people in my community who are looking for support are looking yeah. for, I signed up for this, this new phase of my life. What do I do now? Yeah. Wow. So you were creating these videos. Everyone else is taking this course on YouTube videos, right? To like go make a buck. <laughs> and you're like, oh no, I just love this. Really? You were just creating content yeah, well, it was kind of my way. Yeah, and it was kind of my way to to like voice all of these, like I said, frustrations and concerns that I felt like were just cyclical. Like they weren't getting solved. They've, you know, yeah. the law firms have operated this way for for decades. It's not a real secret or anything, but it didn't seem like there was any movement there or anybody was really paying attention. Not that I thought I was going to create this massive movement, but it was just like, hey, guys, here are things you need to know and be aware of because they're not going to tell you. They're not going to teach you. Nobody's going to be holding your hand. And it's it's an incredibly unfair environment to be in, especially with the expectations they put on you. Wow. So you were at Big Law then. Is that right? Am yeah. I yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. I was an IT and, litigator. Yeah. Oh, wow. And and uh, you've left that entirely or you still... Yeah. No. So I left private practice and I thought my next step was going to be human rights law. Like that's what I was kind of thinking and had thought okay. since my first summer of law school. So my 1L summer, I had interned for human rights initiative. And so, and it just kind of stuck with me. And I always thought, well, when I go into a law firm, I'll work cases pro bono. And that never happened. Not that yeah. you can't, it's just really tough because every time, you know, like, um, a case came on the table or there was even a training, something got busy with work and I just never did it. And so it got to the point where I realized mm. if I really want to make this happen, I, I'm not going to be able to do this in tandem. 
And so I kind of went down um, that road for about two and a half years. And I was like doing pro bono cases and I was like interning different places and trying different things. And, and, wait, I, and wait, I hate um, to sh- how, yeah. how do you make money that way? So you left big law. Yeah. So you could have time to do these pro bono cases, but they are yes. pro bono. So you're working yes. for some like nonprofit or something like that. Is that yeah. how? So I was living off savings for a good like chunk of time. Yeah. Which, which wow. like big law allowed me to do, right. I was allowed to, I was able to save a bunch of money sure. to go and do sure. that. But, um, and so that was one of the benefits and not that I didn't enjoy big law. Like it was, I, I thought it was really challenging and fun and fast paced and all of these things. But I also realized I'm not going to be able to do this other thing at the same time. And the uh, I always say, so that was a big thing. And another big thing was I was an IP litigator and I thought, and I really loved the litigation piece. I yeah. thought that was really interesting and fun. Yeah. And I, I got a high from like depositions and, you know, yeah. arguing in court and trials and all of that. But what I realized over time was that when we were on these cases, you're on a team. And so you might have anywhere from like five to 20 other people on the team and other associates would be sending out blogs and articles and other cases being decided just like hey guys look at this look at that did anybody see this and yeah. i and, and i would just ignore them because i was like oh that has nothing to do with our case and i'm already underwater trying to just do what's on my plate and it took me it took me years before i realized oh people are doing this in their free time like people are just nerding out over patent oh, law wow. yeah. and like and reading this stuff in their free time and sending it you know in their off hours and that's when I realized, like, I want to do something that I'm so excited about and nerding out about that I'm doing it in my free time. And I was like, patent law is definitely not it. It could be litigation, mm-hmm. but yeah. but not in this sector. Wow. Well, so as you were talking, it made me think of this one stat. I think like 40% of law school applicants say in their personal statement that they intend to do public interest, right? But something like only like 2% actually do. So I've heard, I don't know if it's true, but I've heard that admissions officers really look at these personal statements with a you know, an eye of skepticism because so few people actually go forward with that. Now you went into big law, but then you left and you did a lot of this work on your savings. You sound like one of the 2%. Well, okay. So here's, so this, this story ends, not, I was going to say, it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't end well, but it probably doesn't end like in the, this beautiful, like altruistic, yeah. like on, on, a, on a cloud floating into the horizon. Okay. Yeah. Because, we could just stop there. Do you want to just right, stop? Right. We could just end it and then be like, thanks, Angela. Right. So that's what I did for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, no, I know people who do, but so here was the, here was my experience in sort of that sector. So the first few cases I did were really fun and and interesting and they're different, right? So they're challenging to me and all of this. And a couple of things that are tough to do human rights law in the US, in my experience. The first one is there's not not really technically human rights law that exists in the US because we haven't signed any treaties. We haven't succumbed to any specific jurisdictions. We're above Uh, all that. (laughs) We're, yeah, we're totally, yeah. That that is one perspective. Yes, exactly. That's, sorry, I'm not. That's just the vibe that we're sending. Right? We're like, oh yeah, well, we're good. We're good there. We're yeah. just doing it so well. We don't need any oversight. That's that's what's going on. Yeah. So so when I was like trying to find out, okay, like what is human rights law in the U.S.? The thing yeah. that feels or seems the most prevalent is asylum law because that okay. is like the yeah, yeah. closest yeah. thing to to what a lot of these other treaties provide for. And so I did that for a while. And like I said at okay. the beginning, it was interesting and challenging. Yeah. The the problem, so the I guess the struggle for me was that it became quite repetitive quite quickly. 
And so it, even though the people you're helping have these insane stories of like fleeing their countries and, and, and just overcoming oppression and all of these things, which is truly, yeah. truly inspiring, the actual legal day-to-day is, is very repetitive. It's very similar. You make similar arguments. Yeah. You go through similar yeah. steps. And so I think coming off of a type of law that is very like sort of complex and challenging and moves really quickly, that was that was tough for me because I I do like that feeling of being pushed just outside of sure. what I what I feel capable of doing. Yeah. Um, and so that was one piece. And then I think the other piece that was really tough. I, now I'm like blanking on it, but, but yeah, I think that was just the biggest thing is, is it wasn't, oh, I know what it was. So it was the type of law, but then it was also the people I was working with. So some of the people, not everybody, but there are some diehard people in that industry to the point of like, I'm not kidding, like having Twitter up on their computer and, and just like reading statements of like dictators and like oppressors and, and protests and just in real time, knowing everything that's happening either in the world or in their region. Yeah. And I just saw that and I was like, oh, I am not as into that as these people seem to be. So I, like the way that I interpreted that was I, I, I'm not like cut out for this or this isn't as yeah. interesting to me as it is to like the diehards. And then I think the third piece, too, that was that I started to see was that the burnout is really real in that industry because the mm. issues that you're dealing with are so intense and um, and they affect people so deeply that it can, you can really start to internalize that and take that home. And, and the other realization you have is no matter how hard I work, no matter how many hours I put in, no, how many, how many weekends, um, I give up, I, it's just going to be a drop in the bucket. And so I, this is why I hate telling this story because I don't want to like dissuade anyone from going to public interest. They need good lawyers. They need good people. But I realized that this is actually sucking my energy rather than kind of like invigorating, invigorating me and like really, um, inspiring me to do good work. So that was kind of where, where, where the reason that I, that I left that. And at the end of 2019, I really was in a place where I thought, well, what am I going to do now? Because I, I, I left private practice with the thought that this was the thing. And then if this is not the thing, then what is it? And it was right at that time when I realized, well, I've been, I have this YouTube channel I've been making for about a year and a half at that point. I think I really loved answering these questions and giving advice. Like I can literally feel my heart rate increase, you know, like that, that like yeah. vibe feeling you feel. Yeah. And so I was yeah. like, well, maybe, maybe this, like, maybe I, maybe I really like this. And, and there was something of, I, I can like remember this vividly that there was a big part of me pushing back on that because like a lot of us, so much of my identity was wrapped up in being a practicing lawyer that mm. I'm not kidding. Like for years, I like judged myself for leaving practice. I, and I was just like, oh, this is going to be temporary. I'm not going to do this full time. This is not going to be the next thing. And then I finally like slowly over time realized, hey, you really, you really love this. And like the feedback I was getting is really helping people. So I think this is a good fit. Wow. There's a lot in there, Angela. I'm so glad you came on the show. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people need to hear this, right? Because so many people are trying to go to law school for the wrong reasons. They don't even realize it. They're unaware of it. There's just the obvious, uh, quote unquote, obvious next step. But, you know, it's it's funny too listening to your story because you were saying that when you were doing this asylum work, mm-hmm. it was very repetitive. And when I was, so I went to GW Law School and when I was a 3L, I clerked at the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. So I was in Maine Justice and our... Uh, I was in the civil rights division, but ICE had too many asylum cases. 
So they sent a bunch around the DOJ. And my boss said, hey, does anyone here want to take one of these cases? So I said, sure. I mean, what else am Yikes. I going to do? Right. So I took a case, but we were on the other side, right? We were right. trying to say, hey, this story is full of holes and this person should be denied asylum. So, you know, right. what a great job to take on there. But right. um, <laughs> yeah, some poor soul. It's like, let me figure out what's wrong with your story and tell right. you why you can't come here. Oh, gosh. But the same, I, I realized it just now as you were talking, I was given a brief that had really already been written for somebody else. And we were just doing the same thing. It was like replacing the facts, but a lot of the facts were actually very similar and kind of just tweaking it. And so it's like, yeah, I got to draft a brief for the third circuit, but not really because I was just kind of remodeling one that had already been done before. And that's also ironically when I decided I don't want to do anything with law anymore. So <laughs> really, was it because of a similar reason that you felt like it, it was repetitive or didn't challenge yeah. you or was well, it something it was partly, separate? It was partly the repetitiveness, but also I was thinking to myself, okay, I'm a 3L. I'm working on a brief that's going to go to the third circuit. This should be exciting, but I'm dragging myself into the office, walking down the streets in DC, like, okay, like, when do I got to go there? I'm like, this can't, you know, this can't yeah. be for me because people are waiting years to do their own kind of work like this and I'm already hating it. So. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. And, and, it, and again, this, I, I can't reiterate enough how much I hate sharing this part of the story because I can absolutely see myself, especially as a baby lawyer, right out of law school, I could have yeah. seen myself really liking that for the, at least for the first three years, because yeah. everything's new when you first start. And then just having been, I think at that time I was probably close to being a seventh year associate. It, it yeah, it felt repetitive at that point, but that's not to say that, you know, different types of cases or different areas of public interest or things like that can't be a good fits for people. But um, yeah, that was unfortunately my experience and, and that's why I knew it wasn't for me. Yeah. Well, it's okay. So you found what you like, which is hard for people to do. Yeah. It, I would say you love, right? You seem very enthusiastic about this. So it's so funny you say that because, for, like I said, for years, I would push back against that so hard and say, well, you know, it, yes, it's what I do and I enjoy it. But yeah, like I can tell, I know we were talking about this earlier, but just when I get started talking about this or if I'm in a coaching call with students, I'm like so jazzed about yeah. it. And I think it's because I was like, I think about this a lot, but I, I wonder if it's because I kind of view it as a puzzle. Like, And I don't know if you guys kind of view the LSAT in the same way, but it's like Law school, law school, the law school grading system feels like a black box to most of us, especially when you're just starting out and it's not mm. really clear how you study and it's not really clear how you write a final exam answer. And it's not really clear how professors grade and all of these different pieces. And I guess I feel like if you like to be able to crack that code and put it in a way that's very actionable and very sort of structural and formulaic for that people can actually follow feels yeah. really exciting because that's not how it felt at all to me when I first mm. started. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't know the causal mechanisms that will lead to progress, right? You can feel like you're just shooting in the dark and that can be discouraging. But what it sounds like you're doing is saying, okay, now here's the actionable item you can take now. And this is going to have an impact. Even if you can't see it today, I promise you this is going to lead to better grades. And that's got to be encouraging. 
Yeah, because I think that's what people struggle with the most. And I remember back to first semester is just like you said, you feel like you're putting in all this work. And because there's only one final at the end of the semester, that's 100% of your grade. You don't know if any of that actually worked until you get your grade back. And it's like, oh, I guess it did or I guess it didn't. But it yeah. also makes it hard to pinpoint, OK, well, what did work well or what could I have done better? or What pieces do I need to sort of revamp? And so if you have, yeah, if you have that sort of action plan in place, you can see, all right, this is where I need to put more hours in, or this is what I need to improve on. So it actually makes this thing not, not only actionable, but you actually have a, an ability to improve over time instead of just, well, I guess grades aren't for me because that didn't go well. Yeah. Well, I do remember that experience. I remember getting B's in a class and I had no awareness that I would get that grade in that class right. until the class was over. And I just right. remember being like, okay, well, I guess I have to learn the lessons about that class for my next class, which is a different professor. I don't, the whole thing right. was right. a little, right. yeah, it was discouraging on some level. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, the top five mistakes that one else make on final exams, what, <laughs> what are they? Yes. So uh, I was so excited putting this list together because, and this sounds terrible when I say that there, there are quite a few, but I think these are some of the, um, the most important ones and the ones that seem to repeat themselves really often. And so the first one is, I guess, in terms of, if you're going to couch it in terms of a mistake is studying for your, your first final exam, just because it's first. And so mm -hmm. I, I see this happen a lot. So let's say it's a Tuesday and my first final exam is on a Monday where people usually will default is okay, great. So from now until Sunday night, I'm studying for that final, let's say it's bat, uh, it's torts. And so they'll spend however many days that is five days, six days on this one exam. And then they'll basically fill in the holes for the other exams as, as they're happening, as they come, come mm. due. But when you do that, of course, you are front loading all of your time and energy into the very first exam that's happening, even if all of your exams are the same are weighted the same, right. Or affect your grade point average the same. And so what's, What's like the instead, like what to do instead of that is getting really clear on how many days do I have from ideally the last day of class to my last final exam, not counting final exam days. And let's say that's nine or let's say that's 12. Then what we're looking to do is divide those nine days by three doctrinal classes. And we're going to do three days for each or four days for each if we have 12 days. And so the idea is not only that you're spreading out the number of days that you're studying for each final, but you're also doing it in an alternating way so that you get to take advantage of the time of that exam period where you are freshest, where you are, where you have the most energy, where you're the most focused and the most motivated because those, I mean, I'm sure you remember this, but those final exam periods are exhausting. So we're looking at yeah three, sometimes four weeks of just going all in all day. And your brain is going to get more fatigued as you go through that. And so we want to make sure that we're giving equal love to all of our doctrinal exams, which means that we're studying for all of those at the beginning, even if the, the, you know, contracts exam doesn't fall until the end. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And one thing you were just saying there, you were saying, okay, let's say we have nine days and we have three you say doctrinal and that's what they said in law school, but I always thought it was doctrinal. So I don't know oh. which one it is, but let's go with doctrinal. Cause that's what my professor said in law school. And I was like, I, I don't know if you're right about that, but um, anyways, the, the doctrinal classes, right? Let's say you have three of them and you got nine days. So you're looking at three days each. You're not, are you, are you doing like 
three days, three days, three days? Or are you actually doing like a third of the day for one, a third of the day for one, a third of the day for one? So you're spreading that studying out over time. And of course, you have to probably weigh the earlier classes a little bit more at the beginning and so forth to make it all work. But so it's it's funny you ask this question because like one of the things that we spend a lot of our coaching time doing is building out these calendars. And I thought because, you know, even just saying it out loud, it's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But of course, everybody's schedule is a little bit different. Your exams mm-hmm. fall on different days and yep. some classes have different credit hours and some people have like their last day of class falls on different days. So so the, the short answer is it will depend. But what we're looking for is. The 24 hours, if we can swing it 48 hours before the exam, you'll allocate to that particular exam. And then based on how your exams fall, my recommendation is to start alternating. So so starting at the end and working your way back, we're actually going to alternate days. And the reason that we're doing that is so that we get that first week to the extent that, of course, you don't have like a, a final exam one day after class ends, which is, is is unusual. You will be able to actually make progress, study progress on all of your doctrinal classes at the beginning when you have a lot of energy. And then as you get closer and closer to the exam and you get more and more fatigued, you'll be able to do fewer and fewer hours of work and still feel prepared as opposed to kind of painting yourself into a corner with your second exam or your third exam or your fourth exam because you, you know, like we all do, got nervous and then spent, you know, seven days on one exam just because it happened to fall first. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. It, um, it, I think there might be another benefit here. And maybe I, I'm curious what you think about this. But if if uh, someone, let's just talk about one subject for a half second here. Sure. Um, in our case, the LSAT, you know, you can break it up into sections, but let's just think about games for example if Mm. someone had three hours to study for games and they had these three choices one to study three hours on one day and then be done or to study one hour one day two hours the next day and then be done or study one hour for three days i would say study the one hour for three days because when you study right for that hour um first of all you're kind of what you're talking about you're energetic you're you're fresh you're not going to get as tired and you get rejuvenated the next day. So each of those hours are going to be more productive. But also, um, from what I understand, after you study something, if you have an opportunity to sleep between that study period and your next study period, you can your brain takes some stuff from the I think it's the hippocampus and it puts it into longer term memory. And then when you recall it the next day, your your brain is pulling that back out and in the process of doing so, actually gaining a better understanding of it. So um, there's not just this benefit of, oh, I have you know more energy each hour that I'm doing if I'm only doing one hour a day. I'm also getting this benefit from sleep, which I'm gonna do anyway. And so I wonder if those benefits are coming for people who are coming back to a subject multiple times as opposed to just trying to cram it all in one day. Mm, yeah. So So what I've seen is it working differently for for different people. And so kind of from my perspective, I think the biggest thing for me is how long does it take you 
to drop into a subject because a lot, mm-hmm. a lot of time when you're sitting down to study for these things, there's a lot of resistance to beginning because you know, and your brain knows, okay, this is going to take a long time. This is going to be hard. I don't want to start. And so if it takes you, you know, I'm just thinking back like 45 minutes for me to just get going. I wouldn't, I, I would sort of err on going for as long as I can before needing a break so that whether okay. that's three hours yeah. or four hours or five hours, because I can actually get things done. Because once you get started, of course, starting is the hardest part. So once you get started, you can keep going. Um, and, and the other piece too, is when we're doing these final exam prep days, there could be, you could do a whole day of, of one subject. If you have the luxury of time to be able to do that. And that really fits with your studying style, because in the final exam season, there's so much content to get through that like we don't, we usually don't have the luxury of being able to kind of like pick and choose exactly how we spend our days. Cause it's like, man, we got to get through 60 pages of this stuff in three days. So a mm. lot of it is, you know, um, if you can, if you can stay focused and stay engaged for a, a long time and that works for you, great. If it doesn't, and you know it about an hour and a half or two and a half hours or whatever it might be, you need a break. You can either take a break and come back or you could switch subjects. And yeah. so the, the, the sort of hypo that you mentioned of like doing three different subjects on one day, that sounds like a lot to me. It could work for somebody for sure. If they know, yeah. all right, I, this is the way I've been studying all semester. Two and a half hours is my max. I'm going to go two and a half, two and a half, two and a half. Great. Um, but what I've tended to see with people is it's usually either I'll go all day on one subject or I'll switch and I'll do half a day on one and half a day on the other. Mm. Maybe, maybe my breaking up the subjects is better over the long run. Right. So that you're when you're coming to the end of the semester, you've come back to these things multiple times throughout the week and throughout the months so that they're not as hard to recall. I don't know. Just curious. Just asking questions. And if I'm nerding out too much, Angela, just let me know. But it sounds no, like the short, <laughs> I know the short answer is I don't know. That would be that would be an amazing experiment to do of like, yeah, are you what's like the level of understanding and what's the level of recall if you do it all day on one? or half a day on one or a third of a day over the course of three days. I, I think that would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So that's number one, right? I guess is, is fixing this study schedule. Okay. Yes. And then the second one is getting a li- little in the weeds, but, but not too much. So, so another thing that I see happen a lot is just for context, when we're talking about law school exams, the most popular and also most infamous type of law school exam is the issue spotter. So it's a long hypothetical fact pattern. It can be a few paragraphs. It can be up to like 14 pages. And then at the end, you're usually asked a question that's very broad, something like, please discuss all claims and defenses of all the parties. And so when you are writing your analysis, you're having to issue spot, right? So find legal issues and then analyze them. And so what I usually will see when people start to analyze one of the issues they've spotted is they will restate the facts. And so something Mm -hmm. like very, very basic would be, you know, D walked up to P in an empty grocery store aisle, said, I like those, and then pulled on P's earrings. And they yeah. will, and and they will literally write the write that verbatim. And yeah, so the yeah. thing, and it's very common. Like I even catch myself doing it when I'm doing these practice exam buildouts. But the but you actually don't get any points for that because you're not explaining to the professor why are those facts relevant and what yeah. is the argument I'm making based on those facts. And so and so anytime you catch yourself restating facts, what you want to do instead is make sure you're putting that in the context of an argument. 
And so when we're making an argument, we're taking a legal rule plus the facts equals the argument. And so mm -hmm. we have to relate that back to a rule of law so that our professor knows these facts are relevant because they either meet or don't meet the standard of this rule. And that is the argument that this party is making. So in terms of LSAT jargon, we're taking a fact or two plus a legal rule as premises or evidence for our conclusion that the person is liable or not liable or whatever you're trying to argue. I love that. Yeah, exactly. Okay, exactly. cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's easier to see. I mean, it's kind of hard to talk about sort of at a high level without, you know, building it out. But just I guess the sort of tip and takeaway is just if you notice yourself doing that, make sure you're putting it in the context of either the plaintiff will argue or the defendant will argue and then applying a rule to make sure those facts have a home. And that's at the end. But during the issue spotting, you are no, that's during the analysis. So you, you've spotted your issue and now you're analyzing it. Whether so in the issue spotting, you are doing facts, right? You're saying, oh, this is a potential issue or no? So when you're, I don't remember so you're, much, <laughs> as you can tell, I could, I've like forgotten, like I, I blocked all of that out of my mind. <laughs> right. <I'm> like, what? <laughs> no, no worries. Yeah. So, okay. So when you're going, when you're reading and maybe we should have started there. I know I hate that we're kind of jumping around. I'm sorry, guys. But so when you're issue spotting, you're reading through the fact pattern and you are noting in the margins facts that are triggering per, per, uh, potential legal issues. So oh, this okay, fact, I got you. You're not actually yes. writing anything down. You're just no, going. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, this is your this is your your prep phase. The, this is yes, it, right. The actual when you are actually in your analysis phase, like the literal writing of the analysis. Got it. Okay. What? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What people will do is just start reciting facts verbatim, and then and then they'll move on to the next issue. And it's like, no, no, no. You haven't analyzed anything yet. You've just and it's funny because in your head. Yeah, you know, and like, again, that like, fact means something yes, to me. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Like the the yeah. like the wheels are turning, and you're like, the fact yeah. is relevant because it shows intent to commit a harmful or offensive battery. But you didn't write any of that stuff down. You just rewrote the facts, and yeah. so and and it really sucks when when people get their exams back and they're like, but that's what I meant. And, and <laughs> unfortunately, yeah, and unfortunately, you know, they always tell you you have to show your work, like you have to baby step your professor through these arguments in order yeah. to get any points for them. Okay. Moving on to number three. Yeah, yeah. Great. All right. So number three feels a little superficial, but it is crazy important. And it's all about formatting. And so the mistake a lot of one else will make is that they don't format their final exam answers. And what we want to do instead is format our answers. And so hmm. if you can kind of imagine when you're writing your analyses for these issue spotter fact patterns, these things are long and they're dense and they're complex and there's a lot of issues you're spotting and there's a lot of arguments you're making. And so a tendency for, for a lot of my, myself included, all of these things are things I did one all year is you'll start writing and you'll just be writing a mile a minute. And before long, you have this massive wall of text and there's okay. no breaks and there's no indicators and there's no sort of roadmap or anything for your professor. So if you can imagine it from their perspective, they're going to they're going to print out all of these exams and they're going to be reading them and they are not going to be inclined to go digging through your answer to award you points. Some of them might, but you are putting yourself in a really vulnerable position to expect them to. And they're reading a lot of these. So if you're like a normal one out class might have 100 students in it and they're trying to, you know, like pound through these things in a week and they're going to be going really fast and they're going to be, you know, having they have your exam over here and their rubric over here. And so what we want to do is signal to them what arguments we're making so they can find them really easily and assign us a lot of points mm. to them. OK, yeah. And so when we're talking about formatting, we're talking about things like headings. So like 
question one, subheadings. All right, I'm going to talk about battery. Now I'm going to talk about false imprisonment. Now I'm going to talk about assault. Um, we're looking for paragraph breaks. So the more paragraph breaks, the better. If you're ever wondering, if you're like in an exam and you're wondering, should I, should I or shouldn't I have a paragraph break? Go ahead and make one. It's easier to read. Um, and then the big That's one. That's just which, a good life lesson. Right, yeah. Right there. Really. Yeah, it is. Well, it, and it's so funny you say that because I'm thinking back to my first year at at the law firm that I worked at and I wrote this memo and I was so proud of it and and I turned it in and the one piece of feedback I got was more subheadings and more paragraph breaks. And I was and it, it kind of broke my heart because I was like that's the thing like that's the only thing that I did wrong and they called me out on it. And so yeah, but it's just you're reading for I mean, this is kind of going off on a total tangent, but like when you're sending emails to a partner or memos to a client, like they're busy and this is not their priority and so you want to make it as easy for them to read as possible. Yeah, very cool. So you're saying add these titles, uh, the, these headings, right? Substantive headings. Yeah. So it will depend on the question, but minimum heading question one, minimum subheadings, like the issues you spotted, if you can, if you can do it, minimum paragraph breaks as, as often as you can stomach them. And then the other thing that really, really helps, and I know it sounds ridiculous, but is literally adding numbers. Yeah, and so when I can see we're that being writing huge. Yeah. It it really is because not only does it help your professor find arguments to award you points, but it also helps you stay organized. And yeah. so I was like before this, I was trying to come up with kind of a simple example. And so, you know, if we're talking about torts and you're analyzing battery, and battery has two elements and it's intent to cause a harmful or offensive contact, and then element two is a harmful or offensive contact actually results. If you number those, it is going to be so much more likely that you're going to remember to analyze whether there's intent or not and whether there was a harmful or offensive content, uh, contact or not than if you just write it as a, as a sentence, as a rule statement. Because I've seen that happen so often is there's all these points you could have gotten if you broke up your rule statements into numbers. And um, it also helps your, of course, signal to your professor, hey, I'm analyzing something new. Hey, I'm analyzing something new. Hey, give me points for this. So yeah, yeah. numbering's big. So you're talking about numbering within the text. It's almost like you're yeah. um, numbering the prongs of the test or something like that. You're like, hey, there's a three-prong test, one, two, three. And then you're saying first, second, third. I'm, I, that's got to make it good for you, like you're saying. And the professor can just scan it, right? They don't even probably maybe even read it that carefully. They're like, oh, yeah, three points. Yeah, yeah good. I, I like this I student. I know. I know. And it's so funny you say that because I don't like I do not claim to know what how professors grade or how every professor grades. But you're also not wrong because they're humans, too. And they have a lot of these things to get through. And the easier you make it on them, the easier it would be to award you points, even if maybe you messed up that analysis a little bit or maybe you didn't state the rule exactly right. Um, they They could definitely be inclined to still give you points for it. And so, yeah, it's a good rule. L of them. Little speculation here. I don't know if it's very helpful, but um, I wonder if your first, like if you have a long essay that you're writing, right, for your exam and you have multiple questions that you're answering, if you do very well in your first two and then you format well your remaining ones, you know, to what extent does that help you? Because I would imagine as a professor, if the first few answers were like spot on, you're just like, okay, this person knows what they're talking about. And then you can kind of see the rest. You're just like, yep, 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 yep. I mean, who knows? But no, but I, I think that's, I think that's amazing because so I've heard again, there's, there's no way to generalize an entire group of people, but <laughs> there is definitely a strategy where you always start with question one when you're freshest and most energetic and all the things. 
um, because rather than skip around, that is like rather than start with question three and come back to question mm-hmm. one, because, yes, there is this belief, which I think is very rational, that your professors are also going to start reading question one. And yes, in terms of formatting, but even more in terms of your writing style, because what tends yeah. to happen is you as you go through a final exam, you run, you start running out of time and you start going faster and faster. And by the end, you might be just like bullet pointing things just to get them on the page. But yeah. if you started out writing really strong, there is this human tendency to write that we're speculating about, but to assume that not assume, but have evidence that you're a strong writer, that you're that not only are you making good arguments, but you're doing it in a really compelling way. And yes, and to sort of assume that if you know what you're doing, the rest of your exam probably follows pretty closely to that. Now, I have heard professors say they try to combat that by reading all of question one, everybody's question one, and then everybody's question two, and then everybody's question three, so that they don't read it um, exam by exam. But but maybe not everybody, right? So yeah, yes, yeah. if you're going to put uh, like a good foot forward, definitely do it on question one. And then by, and by the time you get to question five and you're bullet pointing stuff, they can totally give you points for that. Even if your writing style isn't, you know, A plus at that point. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. All right. So speaking of professors, so number four, the mistake that I see a lot of 1Ls making is not asking their professor what their preferences are in terms of final exam answers. And this one is kind of, this is kind of funny because I definitely did not do this 1L year because I was so incredibly intimidated. Like going to professor office hours is intimidating. These people seem really smart. They know every fact of every case. They've been teaching this thing for 20 years. And I remember feeling like I didn't even know the material well enough to formulate a question. Like I was going to make a fool of myself just like walking in. But we do it for a strategic reason. We want to get reconnaissance. We want to get an understanding of what these professors want to see in their final exam answers. And not, I I was going to say not all, but most professors are not very forthcoming with what it is they like to see, how they like to see their answers written. And so if your professor is wonderful, if your professor gives a model answer or an A answer from a past exam, fantastic, because that's really the gold standard. Now we we Mm. can see what a professor has actually given points for in the past, not just what they claim to like to see. Yeah. Um, But yeah, if if you can go in there and stomach asking questions like, do you like the Iraq structure? Do you want to see the conclusion first and last? Do you like the argument counter argument structure? Do you like policy arguments? What what would you say an A answer, how an A answer stands out to you? So like if you can ask questions like that, maybe they won't tell you anything, but maybe they will. And that's really valuable information to know so that you can make sure that you're writing to the audience that's actually giving you this grade. I love it. I mean, uh, just getting over that hump of going in and talking to people is just a valuable skill in so many contexts, right? We we want to, especially today, I think, email people, text people, do this sort of non-interaction communication, if anything, right? And I don't think that's where the real juice comes from, right? The real information gets spilled once you start a conversation. It's like, oh, and by the way, um, I've started looking for this and it's like, what? Like that information wouldn't have come out. And now also the professor knows you a little bit better. That's got to help in a huge class. Yeah. So it's, it's awesome that you brought that up because when we're talking about professor office hours, there's a few sort of reasons or strategies that we're even doing it. One is to get answers to your substantive questions, right? So if you, if you are not understanding something, a professor is much more likely to explain it 
in sort of a, a basic way that makes sense on in a one-on-one mm. environment than they might do yeah. in a lecture environment where they're trying to prove a point or they're trying to get you to think about it or that kind of thing. They might just straight straight up tell you. Yeah. Um, the second reason is we want to know what their exam answer preferences are to the extent that they will share those with us. And then the third reason is because these people can be amazing resources, like you were saying, for rec letters. If you are going out for a judicial clerkship um, or the, the AG honors program, um, or you're trying to transfer law schools, like I've had some people reach out to me already knowing that they're going to look to transfer and you need rec letters in order to transfer law schools after your 1L year. Um, and then also to be able to get RA, like research assistant positions, teaching assistant positions. Um, and then I've actually had, and then on the, on the job seeking side, informational interview styles where they can hook you up with lawyers they used to work with. Like I've had multiple students come to me and say, I was in my professor's office hours, you know, asking questions about the class. And they said, oh, by the way, I should put you in contact with so-and-so partner that works at this law firm where I, where I used to practice. And so, yes, like the, the, the relationship side of that is so valuable apart from just the grade strategy. Wow. You know, I want to add to that. I'm reading the book, The Price You Pay for College. It has to do with undergrad. But in this uh-huh. book, um, uh, they talked about, I can't remember which president of which university it was. I think it was the University of Oregon. But anyways, the president came in and said, hey, I want to know how we're doing. And they were trying. So then the first question is, well, how do you assess that? How do you decide whether you're succeeding as an institution? And it eventually, I don't remember these details super well, but eventually it led to a study and it was uh, very large. And they basically asked people, you know, what they were doing, what their job was and what they uh, thought of their undergrad experience and, and what they got out of it. And they were trying to determine what led to success, right? And there are people who didn't have jobs and there are people who had jobs and they were very happy with their jobs or had jobs but weren't happy with them, (laughs) all sorts of things. And the thing that they found most correlated with um, having a job that they were very happy with was having a good mentor in school. So they looked for all sorts of different things, you know, class size, university size, major, grades. People could have higher or lower grades, smaller, bigger schools, but whether they had a mentor that they connected with was really critical to them having a positive experience in their current job. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. That's such a testament to building relationships. Yeah. That's incredible. Building relationships. Yeah. And getting insights that you just can't get through the normal process, right? Versus someone who's like, oh, hey, by the way, have you done this or what are you doing for OCI or I don't know, these small conversations that can lead to forks in the road and help you go in one direction versus another. And it's also something that you're doing, I think, as a coach, right? Like people come talk to you and you're like, oh, by the way, have you thought about this? And they're like, no, I've never thought about that. I never would have had it not been that I talked to you. Yeah. And I think, I mean, to your point, I think that's what got me so excited about coaching because I remember sort of coming out the other side of law school. And yeah, once you're through law school, you have all of this amazing knowledge and insight and experience and and uh, helping people not have to repeat the same cycle that goes on year after year after year of not knowing this stuff or not knowing how to do it or how to do it better or, you know, not feeling like you're banging your head against the wall and and all of these things. And, um, and I, I agree with you. Like, I think it's really hard to just 
inherently know that on your own without having gone through it and then be able to look back and say, all right, here are the strategies that worked. Here are the ones that didn't. This is why, you know, and then you don't have to feel like you're wasting time and energy on, on like, yeah, starting it, starting everything from scratch or, or building the wheel from zero. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So that was tip four. Sorry. I I have a tendency to tangent, but that was tip four. (laughs) And that was to basically go talk to the professor and figure out how to do these exams. Okay. Yes, absolutely. And then number five, which is my favorite is the mistake that a lot of 1Ls make on their first round of exams is they try to get the answer right. And so Mm. when we are talking about Mm. law school world, you do not get any point, I was going to say minimal points, but we don't want to be focusing at all on trying to get the answer right. We want to be focusing on getting points. That's how these exams are graded. And the way that you get points is by making sure that you're making arguments and counter arguments for each issue that you're spotting. And so what tends to happen is that, and again, like this, not only did this happen to me one all year, this happens to me actively in real time when I'm building out these exams is like, we'll start Uh, going through a fact pattern and your brain sees something and you're like, great, saw it, battery, definitely a battery here. I'm going to go write that out. And then once you have decided what something you think exists or some, a rule that you feel like is met, you, your brain goes into tunnel vision and all you are doing is making arguments in support of this conclusion that you have decided is right. And what you're not doing is sort of opening up that view and making sure that you're getting all of these amazing points with counter arguments for why these things aren't met and why this thing doesn't exist. And so um, every time I even like I've written this on paper going into an exam is there is no right answer, argument, counter argument. There is no right answer, argument, counter argument, because professors intentionally write these exams to be factually ambiguous. Like that is the whole point of a law school final exam is to have factually um, to have facts that are ambiguous so that it opens up these doors to be able to argue that this thing is met or this thing isn't met. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say that's the that's the whole underlying ethos of law school. Totally. Right. A hundred percent. I feel like um, not to touch on um, controversial subjects, but maybe like religion or I don't know, even just different disciplines within education, the goal is to provide a path, right? Like this is right, this is wrong. And it felt like law school was like, no, we're here to teach you how to argue whichever side of the argument you end up on. We are agnostic. We are training you to be arguers, I guess, essentially, effective litigators. Yeah. And I mean, and, and that's the thing is like when they talk about this, like nebulous thinking, like a lawyer, that's what you're doing is you're presented with a set of facts and you're able to identify these issues and be able to see them from, from both perspectives, because in the law, not only is there very few black, black and white scenarios, I would say there are no black and white scenarios there. You are never going to have a case where you can't make any counter argument for the other side. And so it's really powerful to be able to to, to voice, even if it's a weaker argument, still make it, I mean, in law school world, because you get points, but also in the legal world, it's definitely worth bringing up because you never know how a, how a judge is actually going to rule or how a jury is actually going to decide. And so kind of like extrapolating this out to practice, I've seen it where, you know, I've been on cases and we were just 
we drank the Kool-Aid and we were so convinced that we had this really strong argument and there's no other way you could see it. And when you do that and when you, you know, you, you make arguments based on one position only, you become totally blind to the counter arguments. And we, you know, I just remember we go into this hearing and not only did the judge rule against us, we hadn't have thought, we hadn't thought of any of those counter arguments. So mm -hmm. we didn't come up with any defenses yeah. to combat them. Right. And so we were just like caught totally unawares. And so it's really powerful, even in practice to be able to do this exercise, because even if you're not going to make the counter arguments, you know, to a judge or to a jury, it's really important to be aware of them so that you know, what's coming your way and you can come up with a defense strategy. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you, you almost have to be your best opponent, right. To yes. then be your best advocate. Yes. I'm curious what you think of this idea. I do remember in law school being like having this aha moment when I realized that the trial courts were deciding the facts and appellate courts were maybe deciding the law. And so when you talked, when you said gray area a second ago, I, I, I think it's impossible to avoid because half, the, you know, half the argument is just even deciding what happened. So we're not even agreeing about what happened. And then once we have some semblance of an agreement about what happened, even though people still disagree, we've decided, okay, well, for the sake of argument, this is what happened. Then you can still debate about whether that action falls under or outside of whatever law is being applied, right? So it's when you go in and say, oh, this is slam dunk, there's so many things that have to be set in stone, which hardly ever are set in stone for that to work. Yeah. And, and also at the trial court level, the trial court judge has so much discretion, especially yeah. when it comes to things like discovery disputes. There is no set law of what the trial court has to do or doesn't have to do. There are so few cases that are going to match, I would say none, that are going to match your specific facts and what mm -hmm. you're asking for and what the argument is against it. And so, it, yeah, you need to not only come with your strongest arguments, but be able to respond to somebody's counter arguments. And, and something that you said um, reminded me of another thing that we would do heading into trial, which is you being your own best enemy, like yeah. being the devil's advocate as strong as you can possibly be. Because when you are prepping witnesses for trial, the best prep that you can give them is to do the cross-examination as yeah. if you were opposing counsel and you are going to bring up everything you can possibly think about them, about the facts, about what happened, about the law or whatever it is, if they're an expert, whatever it is that you can hit them with. And mm -hmm. the best prepped witnesses have an incredible cross-examination practice that's done to them so that they know what's coming, what's coming from the other side and, and how to approach it. Yeah, very cool. Well, um, thank you, Angela. Is there, what else do you want to say? I, I, <laughs> we've been talking for like 50 minutes, I think, almost an hour. Oh Are you done? Are, do you have more that you want to tell? I, it's been great I, talking with you. Yeah, this has been so fun. And I love conversations like this because it just reinforces, like you said, how much, how much fun this is. And, and I know for a lot of, I know for a lot of lawyers, like going back to the LSAT phase or going back to one L year, the thought of that is something that they don't even want to touch. And it was like a time period in their life they want to block out. But I don't, I, you know, I, I don't want to speak for you, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, being able to find this, the, the puzzle to it or the strategy to it, or yeah. really finding a love for it again is yeah. really, really amazing. And so I guess the last thing I'll say is just for all of you guys out there who are starting heading into final exam periods, 
deep breaths. Best of luck. You guys have worked so hard this semester. You absolutely have what it takes. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I, I wish you the best and, um, and just take it one step at a time. Very good. Very good. So most of the people who are listening are, you know, planning to go to law school. That's what they're on this journey for. Right. How about any thoughts for them? Someone, you know, a step back before you've even applied to law school or you're applied and now you're waiting for acceptance letters or you've been accepted and you're deciding where to go. Anything you remember from that period that you wish you would have known? Oh gosh, yes. I have so like I I have so many thoughts. I had to make YouTube videos out of <laughs> I'm sorry. them. So yeah, yeah. no, but they're yes, like all of the thoughts, um, all of the thoughts I had I had to find a like an escape route for them. And so I turned sure. them into videos. But I think there was there was so much I didn't know. I mean, there was way more I didn't know than I did know. In fact, I don't think I knew anything. And so I guess the thing, if I kind of thinking back to that time that I wish I would have thought through a little bit, not that it would have changed decisions I made or anything like that. But I think I heard this once and, and it absolutely applies to me, which is I went to law school to be a law student. It okay. did not even occur to me that I was going to law school to eventually get a job as a lawyer, even though I knew that subconsciously, of course, yeah. that, like when I headed into law school, it was in it was in the mindset of a student. And okay. it's like, OK, this is this is school. I know how to do school. We're going to work on grades. Great. That's the end goal. And I think it would have been really beneficial for me to have thought of it as as a, a stage or a phase to be able to build the life that I wanted. And so the life that I wanted was a career that really excited me, making money I was super excited about, living in a place that I loved. And so if that then becomes the goal of like of kind of playing that out one more step, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, law school and having an amazing experience and, and, and accomplishing all your goals. But then the next step is really what this whole process is designed to do, which is to build a life you're excited about. Then you can start getting into these other steps or mindsets of, oh, well then, yeah, talking to my professor makes a lot of sense because it's not just about the grades. It's about getting this job and building this community and having this lifestyle. And yeah, it makes a lot of sense to reach out to people who are also lawyers or alumni living in this city, because those are the people that are going to be my colleagues in the future. And so I think it makes it more more real and also hopefully allows you to put a little less pressure on yourself in terms of, you know, the LSAT score or the call, the law school you get into or the GPA you get, because yes, those things are powerful and yes, those things are important, but ultimately the sort of gold at the end of the rainbow is, is the life that you're building. Very cool. I think we'll end it there. Thanks, Angela. Yeah, um, thanks so best, much for having me. Of course. What's the best way for people to reach out to you if they want to get in touch? I would say probably Instagram. So at Angela Vorpal is um, the best place. And you can send me a DM if you have any follow-up questions about what we talked about. And um, yeah, I would, I would love to connect with you guys. Great. Be LSAT famous, get on an upcoming show by emailing help at thinkinglsat.com. If you have questions about the LSAT demon, email help at lsatdemon.com. You can also check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. That was episode 378 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.